Uh, and it's my privilege to, uh, to open up the Word of God and to teach for us. We're going to be in the book of Philippians this morning. Uh, Philippians is uh, about halfway or so through the New Testament. If you're using a black hardcover Bible, one of those that are under those seats there, uh, page 981 uh, is where you're going to find today's text. Many of the, uh, of the struggles that we experience in our lives really ultimately boil down to an identity crisis. Uh, who am I? How do I know? And even if I have good answers uh, to those questions, do I really believe those answers functionally in any given moment of any given day? Uh, an author named David Benner points out how this is really a unique problem for humanity. So he says this, In all of creation, identity is a challenge only for humans. A tulip knows exactly what it is. It is never tempted by false ways of being. Nor does it face complicated decisions in the process of becoming. So it is with dogs, rocks, trees, stars, amoebas, electrons, and all other things. All give glory to God by being exactly what they are. For in being what God means them to be, they are obeying him. Humans, however, encounter a more challenging existence. We think, we consider options, we decide, we act, we doubt. As those who are image bearers of God, uh, who we are, our identity, really is inseparable from who God is and from what God has done. And so all of God's work from the beginning of his creation has a bearing, has weight and meaning for our identity. But this month is worth considering Jesus' resurrection and our lives in light of Jesus' resurrection, we're going to see that the resurrection of Jesus has particular impact on our identity. Specifically, that it gives us a new measure for ourselves. One that I hope you will see, and if you don't already believe this, that maybe you will even come to believe this. One that is far more stable. Uh, One that is far more kind. One that is far more gracious than any of the other measures that our world uses for us or even that we use for ourselves. So to all of you who perpetually struggle to measure up, especially in your own eyes, who feel like you're floundering, who feel like you're failing as a student, as a child, as a parent, as a friend, as an employee, maybe even as a human being, may you know today that when Jesus Christ rose from the dead and when he shattered the power of sin and death, one of the things that he shattered with them were the crippling and counterfeit measures of identity that we're prone to use on ourselves and others. And one of the places that we see this most clearly comes in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. Uh, If you're familiar with this letter, or perhaps not, it's written from prison. Paul is writing this letter from prison And yet, it is among the most free, uh, the most confident expressions of faith and of purpose and meaning in life and of joy that we have written down for us anywhere in the record of human history. And the reason is because the measures that Paul used to value, he now perceives as worthless compared to this new measure of identity. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to the book, this book that we love. This is Philippians chapter 3. I'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus Christ, give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ so that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. We pray this morning that you would help us to know the hope to which you have called us, that we would know the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, that we would know the immeasurable greatness of your power that is at work within us. And we pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. So for the rest of our time this morning, uh, we'll look at the contrast that there is in this text between the old measures of identity and the new measure of identity. The old measures and the new. So first, let's talk about the old measures of identity. Uh, As one who lived uh, and ministered and traveled among many Gentile people, many non-Jewish people around the first century Mediterranean world, Paul was always on guard against the errors of this group of people known as Judaizers. Uh, Judaizers were those who insisted that faith in Jesus was not sufficient in and of itself for salvation. In the Judaizers' opinion, Gentile converts to Christianity, those who were not Jews that then trusted in Christ and became Christians, they also had to essentially become Jewish. They had to adopt at least some, or if not many of, the rituals and the practices of Judaism. Circumcision became one of the main litmus tests for this, which is why you see circumcision written about so much in the New Testament. Judaizers insisted that new male Gentile converts and their male children needed to be circumcised. And Paul argued, and if you read the book of Galatians especially, he argued very strongly to the contrary. Uh, He said that to add this requirement to faith in Jesus in order for someone to experience salvation, that is not only just to to have an error in your teachings, that is actually to proclaim a false gospel, a false good news that is actually not good news at all because it enslaves people rather than sets them free. And so with a lot of irony embedded in it, but maybe that is not obvious to our ears, Paul begins this portion of Philippians rejecting these false teachings of the Judaizers. So when he says here in verse 2, look out for the dogs, those evildoers, those those who mutilate the flesh, that's reversing 
the common perceptions that Jewish people had in this period of time. Dogs was a term that Jewish people would use to describe the Gentiles, those who were not Jews. Gentiles, in their mind, were the evildoers. They were the ones who were not among the people of God. And circumcision, really, if you read the Old Testament, this is what you'll find. It's not mutilating the flesh. It's this rich symbol of God's covenant upon his people. So this is a a seismic shift that has occurred, much more so than it seems to us who are so culturally isolated and, and distant from this particular period of time. But that's really Paul's point. It's really a seismic shift. And he says there, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and who glory in Jesus Christ, who put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, what he's saying here is that the measures of identity have changed. Paul then proceeds to outline all of these measures that he himself used to live by and by which the Judaizers are continuing to live and by which the Gentiles, those that Paul is ministering to and living among, are being tempted to measure themselves. Though the the specifics, of course, are different, these are the same kind of measures that you and I will be tempted to live by today. And generally speaking, they fit into two categories. The old measures of identity are both what we inherit and what we earn. What we inherit and what we earn. The identity that we inherit is a powerful force, is it not? The identity that we inherit is a powerful force. It's one that follows us for our entire lives, and we only become more aware of that the older we get. We don't choose this, but it absolutely shapes us. And each of us inherits aspects of our identity that we're ashamed of, things like generational sin, addictions, abuses, personality traits that we wish weren't part of our family DNA. Some, for some people, it's major things like legal issues and debt that you inherit. We also inherit aspects of our identity that we're proud of, accomplishments, things that our family has done or, or been in, in past generations, um, wealth for some families, status for some families, reputation or other personality traits that we're glad uh, are part of the family DNA. So this common struggle that all of us have as human beings, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, is that we are all constantly trying to neutralize or limit the effects of our inherited identity that we're ashamed of, while at the same time leveraging these effects of our inherited identity that we're proud of. And the measure of our worth, the measure of our identity, is therefore at any given moment dependent upon which one of these things seems to be winning out more today. So like today is more of that ashamed part of my inherited identity coming out, or is it more of my identity that I'm proud of? And as you might imagine, you don't even have to imagine, as you know experientially from your own life, that's a fragile and volatile measure by which to live. In Jewish circles, Paul had what was an utterly enviable inherited identity, one to be immensely proud of and nothing seemingly to be ashamed of. And that's what he lays out here beginning at the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. He says, I'm circumcised on the eighth day. And when Paul says this, what he's saying is, I was born into a Jewish family with Jewish parents who faithfully followed the commands of God. So Paul's saying, I'm not a, a convert to Judaism. I didn't become a Jewish person later in life and therefore become circumcised later in life. I'm a pure-blooded Jew who was born to a Jewish family. Of the people of Israel, he's saying there, I'm part of God's covenant people. 
So God's promises have applied to me and to my family for generations. We can actually trace it, Paul's saying, all the way back to Jacob and to Isaac and to Abraham. He then says, of the tribe of Benjamin. And he's saying, furthermore, I and my family, we were some of the few faithful ones. So back when the kingdom divided and those ten northern kingdoms went and they set up their own place of worship, they set up their own idols in this northern town of Samaria, my tribe of Benjamin was the only tribe that stayed with the tribe of Judah and continued to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. So in summary, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, perfect inherited pedigree, all the inherited credentials you would ever want, you would ever need to be confident in your identity as the people of God. Now, in addition to what we inherit, another part of our identity is what we earn. What we earn. The the matters about which we do have a choice. And to this perfect pedigree, Paul has added a lifetime of dedication, a lifetime of choices that give him much to be proud about, especially in these Jewish circles. So he goes on to say, As to the law, a Pharisee. Now, to your ears and to my ears, when we hear the word Pharisee, it's an immediately negative connotation. But to someone in the first century, and particularly to a first century Jew, that's an impressive credential. Pharisees were not only the most faithful keepers of the law, they were the strictest interpreters of the law. And they were so fixated on not violating the law of God that they set up their own additional regulations and laws around the actual law of God. It was like kind of putting up an outer border fence around the actual fence itself so they wouldn't actually even get close to violating the law of God. One example that maybe you've heard before is because one of God's laws is that you should rest on the Sabbath day. You should honor the Sabbath by keeping it holy and not work. One of the rules that the Pharisees and groups like them set up was that you could not on the Sabbath day spit onto the dirt. Because spitting onto the dirt creates mud, and mud is used as mortar, and that's work. So you would have to, to be faithful, to keep those additional rules, only spit if you had to spit on on Saturday, on the Sabbath, on rocks, or something like that, so that you would not create mud in spitting. Paul goes on to say soon after this, he was blameless according to the law. So he was so disciplined that he kept these laws and rules, even these excessive and these extra ones. And furthermore, what Paul says here is, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. So he held his convictions so firmly, so fiercely. He was so convinced that he was right about this, that he went on the offensive. It was Paul who presided over the stoning of Stephen, one of the original seven deacons in the early church. That's the first time that we meet Paul in the Bible. He's presiding over the stoning death of Stephen. And it was Paul who then dragged Christians from their homes, took them to prison. As a young man, Paul had already become a known and important leader among the Jewish people. Now again, the specifics are different, but the principles really remain the same. We measure ourselves by what we earn and by what we accomplish. So the question is, what does that look like for you? What does that look like for you? Is it how disciplined you are? Is it how successful or how recognized or how respected you are? Is it how, is it your salary? Is it your job performance reviews? Is it your grades, uh, your test scores? Is it how many friends you have? 
Is it how many likes and comments you get on your social media accounts? Is it the behavior and accomplishments of your children, whether your children are still young or whether they've now become adults in their own right? Some of these are are more superficial than others. But we can base our identity upon any or all of these things, and then some. And as I'm sure this is obvious to you, these are even more volatile and even more fragile measures than the inherited aspects of our identity. Because we have a choice over these matters, what we do is we keep tweaking these choices. We keep attempting to change ourselves and our approach. We keep working harder and trying different things to create an identity for ourselves about which we are proud. And so if you came this morning not yet convinced of this, then please let Philippians 3 convince you it's a losing battle. It's a losing battle. These old measures of identity, they will never do. We need a new measure. And if you come this morning and you're largely ashamed of what you've inherited and of what you've earned, this probably won't be a struggle for you to acknowledge. Because if that's you you're longing for a new way to see yourself. You're longing for a new way to measure your life because you're so tired of being defined by, even in your own eyes, what you don't like about yourself. But if, on the other hand, you come this morning and you're proud of what you've inherited and you're proud of what you've earned, the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be far more offensive to you. Just as it was, as it was incredibly offensive to a first century Jew to be told that their heritage as Abraham's descendants and their attempts to keep the law were no longer the ultimate measure of faithfulness. That was no longer the ultimate measure of what it meant to be among the people of God. And notice this in this passage in Philippians 3. Paul is taking here not the worst of humanity, but the best of what humanity had to offer at this time. He's not talking about here what people were ashamed of, but what they were proudest of. And he's saying these measures fail. They don't cut it. In fact, they will make you into one who opposes and rejects God. That's exactly what it did for the Jewish leaders. And it did that in them to the extent that they were the ones calling out for the death of God's own anointed Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what it did for Paul to the extent that he was one who persecuted the church that God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, established on earth. All of this, too, uh, is not static. It's not static. So even if, uh, as a Christian, you have renounced the old measures of inherited and earned identity, you will feel constantly this pull to go back to them. And it's possible, and people do this all the time, to replace one set of empty religious measures with another. And now, instead of measuring yourself by the date of your circumcision and by your Israelite tribe, we instead measure ourselves perhaps by our denomination or by the religious rituals of Christianity or by the fact that our parents were Christians or our grandparents or our great-grandparents were all Christians. Or we measure it by our church attendance or we measure it by the fact that we keep certain tenets of Christian morality, or that maybe we read the right books and we read the right blogs about theology and about dating and marriage and relationships and social action. Here's the point. You can do everything, quote-unquote, right and still come up feeling empty. You can do everything right and still come up feeling identity 
poor. Why? Because these are the old measures. These are the corrupted measures. And Jesus came and lived and died and lives again in order to put in place a new measure. And so second, let's talk about this new measure. What is the new measure of identity? Let me reread a portion of this text beginning in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. The new measure of identity is knowing Jesus. Gaining Jesus, being found in Jesus. And this is the only measure that matters. Paul here is writing with the language uh, that an accountant would use. So it's as if in taking stock of his life, he steps back, he puts on his green visor. And for a second, he, he adds it all up. A uh, scholar, pastor named James Montgomery Boyce puts it like this. He says, Paul came to the point where he opened his ledger book. He looked at what he had accumulated by inheritance and by his efforts, and he reflected that these things actually kept him from Christ. He then took the entire list and placed it where it belonged, under the list of liabilities. He called it loss. And under the, under the assets, he wrote, Jesus Christ alone. So we, we must ask and examine ourselves. Is this true for you? Is this true for you? Have you added up all of your inherited identity? all of your earned identity, and have you placed it under the column of liabilities? Have you called it rubbish and refuse compared to knowing Jesus? And I want to spend a few minutes, just a few minutes we have left together this morning, teasing out what it does mean to know Jesus according to Paul's definition and understanding here in Scripture. Because if you're anything like me, I've been a Christian for a long time, I believe this. I can read Philippians 3 and say a hearty yes and amen to that. I've staked my life on this being a true statement. And yet, we struggle, I struggle to live this way. I feel, as maybe you do, constantly pulled back to those old measures of identity. And how how warped is this? I even feel it in the way that I proclaim this truth. So a little bit about me and the struggle that this is for me in my life I'm going to preach a sermon this morning about knowing Jesus as the sole new measure of our identity. And by the time this afternoon rolls around, and more likely by the time I get in my car to go home, I will already have been tempted to go back to the old measures and wonder, did that sermon, did people like that sermon? Did it actually do something in the hearts of people? Or maybe at least, how many people stayed awake for it today? (laughs) Which is not a good measure of the day after a lock-in when it's raining outside and cold. It's not a good measure. But that's the struggle that this is for me. So in the spirit of together pressing on to know Christ, that we might functionally, not just in doctrine, but functionally measure our lives by knowing him, by being known by him. Here's what Paul has in mind, at least at a minimum, of what it means to know Christ. It's to know him experientially, it's to know him in suffering, and it's to know him in the power of his resurrection. To know him experientially. Um, There is... And I would even submit to you, this is a great way to talk about your faith with people that don't believe in Jesus, that don't believe in anything, maybe. There is a 
a reason that you and I feel a need to measure our worth and to measure our identity. And that's because your soul has weight. Your soul has weight. It's because you and your life matter. You bear the image of God, and therefore, you not only want to know, you need to know if you are using your life and your time well. It's not the longing in you that's faulty. What's faulty are all these old measures that we use to answer that question of if we're using it well or not. So when Paul says here, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, that is the language of experience of experience. It's more than a head-level ascent to the truth. With the psalmist in Psalm 34 saying, I have tasted and I have seen that the Lord is good. And in his prayers, in his study, in his relationship, his fellowship with other Christians, he's experiencing how infinitely more valuable it is to be in a relationship with Jesus than to have all of this other inherited and earned identity. Uh, in his book called Holiness, the Puritan author uh, named J.C. Ryle talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ, which is another way that Paul, in a different letter, utilizes this language of experiential knowing. And J.C. Ryle says this, In Christ, there are riches of mercy, love, and compassion for sinners, riches of power to cleanse, pardon, forgive, and to save to the uttermost, riches of willingness to receive all who come to him repenting and believing. Riches of ability to change by his spirit the hardest hearts and the worst characters. Riches of tender patience to bear with the weakest believer. Riches of strength to help his people to the end, notwithstanding every foe without and within. Riches of sympathy for all who are cast down and bring their troubles to him. And last but not least, riches of glory to reward. And he goes on to say this, Who can estimate these riches? The children of this world may regard them with indifference or turn away from them with disdain, but those who feel the value of their souls know better. Those who feel the value of their souls know better. So for we who feel the value of our souls, we need to know Jesus in the experience of everyday life, in all of these things and more that Ryle listed. So we don't just know these things about Jesus. We know Jesus. We know his compassion for sinners because we are sinners. We know the transformation of hard hearts because of our hard hearts that need to be transformed. We know of his patience because we are fickle. And we know of his strength because we are weak. We know his riches because we've tried to find satisfaction in so many other things and we only come up starved and empty time and time again. That's to know Jesus experientially. To know Jesus is also to know him through suffering. Through suffering. There's a unique kind of intimacy and identification with Jesus that only comes through suffering. To suffer under the, the sin and the brokenness of this world just as Jesus did, what that does when it happens to us is propels a deeper knowledge and a deeper communion with Jesus himself. And that's especially true, and this is what Paul's getting at here, when we choose to count everything else as lost that we may gain Christ. You guys familiar with that verse? This is a, this is a well-known passage of Scripture. It's a beautiful verse. He's counted everything else as lost compared to knowing Christ. It fits really well on coffee cups. It fits really well on throw pillows or whatever else you might decorate with. I beg you, do not have an overly romanticized view of that verse. The cost 
And the suffering of counting everything else as rubbish will be immense. It will be immense. It will cost you comfort. It will cost you control of your life. It will cost you things that you think you are entitled to. It might cost you relationships. For some of us, it has. And only when you lose those things or anything else, you will discover if you truly count those things as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. But when that happens, not if, when that happens, take heart. Because it is when you and I suffer those losses that we will know Jesus. It's in these places, desperate under the weight of sin, that we become most dependent upon and most assured of our union with him. And in that assurance, we are set free from the slavery, finally, of those old measures of identity. We become confident in the new. So when you suffer, don't run from that. And when you suffer, fight the temptation to think that God is absent from that or being unkind to you in that. Instead, see God in your suffering, obliterating your old corrupted identity measures. And see him replacing them with the new measure of knowing Jesus. To know Jesus is, lastly, to know the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. And in the context of the Roman Empire, in which Paul writes this letter. Power is everything. Power is everything. But in Paul's paradigm, Rome, powerful as it is at this time in history, is not the strongest power. Stronger than Rome is sin's power to enslave and to hold hostage, either by what we're ashamed of or what we're proud of, as we've already seen, and stronger yet than either Rome or sin, is the power of Jesus' resurrection. Paul, we learn both from Philippians and his other writings in the New Testament, Paul uh, believes in a future bodily resurrection. But that's really not his focus here in this text. He has complete confidence that he will one day rise again, uh, that he will experience not only, as he talks about here in Philippians 3, the righteous justification by faith instead of the law, the sanctification of becoming like Jesus, but also the glorification of eternal resurrected life with God. And earlier in the same letter, he tells the Philippians of the confidence that he has that the God who began this good work in them will carry it on to completion on the day that Christ comes again. So when Paul expresses here at the end of this passage this hope that I might, by any means possible, obtain the resurrection from the dead, he's not concerned about his ultimate future. He's not concerned about that. Instead, he's talking about his desire to live the quality of resurrection life in the here and now. An author named Ralph Kuyper envisions Paul colloquially putting it like this. As I walk your streets, as I walk into your homes, as I walk into your stores, as I walk into your offices, as I mingle among the sons of men, he envisions Paul saying, I want to be so living for Christ that you can see that I am a living one among the dead ones that you can see that I am a living one among the dead ones. What an image that is. And what a hope and what what something to aspire to for us as Christians. That in a world that reeks of death and decay, those who know Jesus might be the living ones among the dead. 
because of Jesus' resurrection, to know Jesus, to know the power of his resurrection, transforms us into those who are alive, not only for this future bodily resurrection, but living the quality of resurrection life now. The old measures of identity are broken. And I doubt I need to convince you of that. You probably already came in convinced of that this morning. But there is something intrinsic about measuring our lives by what we inherit and what we earn. And so as you prepare to go back out into this world today, what I would submit to you is that you will, in one way or another, continue to measure your life by what you inherit and by what you earn. So hear the good news of the gospel. In Christ, you have a new inherited identity. You now have a glorious inheritance of a son or daughter of God, one who is dead to sin and alive to God, one who, as we celebrated earlier, has been transferred out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved son. And in Christ, you have a new earned identity, but not based on what you have earned, based on what Christ alone has earned for you. So may you be free from the bondage of the old measures of identity. And if it's obvious to you that those old measures haven't worked, then may you be free of the despair and the shame and the condemnation that you have carried around with you and are carrying with you still this morning. And if it seems like those old measures have worked, then may you be free this morning from the arrogance and the blindness that that produces, putting you in a direct collision course to oppose and reject God. And in trading all of these old measures that you've had, all that you've known for all that is better, resolve this morning to base your identity on nothing except Jesus Christ. May you truly know what Paul calls here experientially, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And may you truly count everything else as loss, everything else as rubbish compared to knowing him. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, would you help us to live the truth of this passage? We constantly measure our lives, measure how well we're doing in life based on what we inherit and what we earn. And time and again, that fails us, and yet we go back to it. Oh, help us by your grace to not do that anymore. And help us to see that you have completely transform the way we should see ourselves. Not only because you created us, but because you have redeemed us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That alive in him, knowing Jesus is the measure, is the only measure that matters of our identity. You have done this great work for us. It's so much more stable and kind than the volatile, hostile measures we use on ourselves and others. So as we come to your table this morning, we come as those weak and needy, and fickle, desperately needing for you to recalibrate our perspective to remind us that this is our new measure of identity, knowing you. May we know you as your first disciples did, even in the breaking of the bread and the wine this morning. May we come and by your spirit be filled again with your grace, sent out with new and renewed confidence that you measure us, that we should measure ourselves solely by knowing Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.